Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is my opinion, and I'm going to seek my approval. Do I approve of me? Love doesn't have any expectations. It doesn't seek something in return. It gives because it wants to. At our core, all of us have these feelings of being unlovable and inadequate. And until we start to care for those parts of ourselves, we can't really have the outer successes that we long for. There's money by you, intuition, insight, creativity, higher vision, transcendence, no. Money does buy you pleasure, and pleasure is good, but it's not enough. We need fulfillment. Welcome to the Unwind Podcast, a show to help you pause, relax, reflect, and be curious. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author and entrepreneur exploring the human experience. I interview world-leading thinkers, shaping ideas around the mind, health, spirituality, philosophy, and culture. I'm often reminded that thoughts become things, so we need to choose the good ones. I hope this show helps you to do that too. Emma Gannon is on today's show, and she is not only a long-term friend of mine, she's a prolific writer and the best-selling author of six books. She was the host of the Control-Alt-Delete podcast and currently writes the Hyphen newsletter. She explores the nuances of life in such a delicate and easy-to-read way. I love her work. And in her latest book, The Success Myth, she investigates the myths around success being a road to happiness. Isn't it easy to assume that if we became just a bit more successful, then we'd be happier? But this formula isn't so simple. In her new book, Emma shows us a new path, perhaps, one that promises far more fulfillment and one that diverges away from the conventional ideas of success. She doesn't provide answers. She says she is no guru, but instead offers us an exploration that I think you'll find just as helpful as I did. I would love you to read a piece of your book. Of course. So this is the first section of chapter one, which is called There is No Success Formula. I'm allergic to gurus telling us about the easy steps to success. Following the publication of my second book, The Multi-Hyphen Method, I was invited into many public and private spaces, including charities, schools, offices, and Amazon HQ. And the brief was to come and tell people how to be successful. Success in the traditional sense, more money, more visibility, more everything. This wasn't the aim of the book. The book was about being a multi-hyphenate, working in a different multifaceted way. Telling other people how to be successful was not my agenda and I was quickly put into the self-help box. People start to treat you though, like you have the four digit code to a safe. And if you tell others the digits, then they too will be able to find success. It was like asking me to come in and tell everyone which haircut to get. I don't know what you want. I don't know your history. I don't know you. I just wanted to help people see a different way to do things. 
I didn't know why things had gone particularly well for that book. It was probably a combination of things. But I felt uncomfortable with the role of advice giver or motivational speaker, and I refused to do it. At Q&As, if someone asked me what they should do to succeed, I turn the questions back onto them instead. If someone acts like they have the answers to what you should do with your life, be wary of them. Everyone is a sole custodian of their own life, and blanket formulas miss the key point, even though we are obsessed with them. The world isn't set up to allow everyone to thrive equally. We must talk about this. Big-time self-help gurus may act like they have the universal winning formula, but they don't. Oh, what a good passage, and it sets us up so well. Because in many ways, I felt this was a very brave book because you suddenly poke holes in a system that arguably we have all been conditioned to follow. Were you nervous at all about writing this book? And why did you feel you wanted to? Yes, definitely. I feel like this book, the premise of it could be kind of torn down. Like I was very aware that someone would say, well, it's easy for you because you've peeked behind the curtain and you've had privileges or chances to see what quote unquote success looks like. But what was interesting, I guess, is because I'm a curious person, I kind of used to do a lot in the journalism space and I want to poke holes and I want to find answers. I felt like I wanted to talk about success as if it was a topic on its own. And obviously I'm linked to that topic though. So it was quite an interesting one. But after interviewing that amount of people and realizing that all these people that you admired growing up don't have the answers and you don't have the answers and you're meant to have them, I thought it was really interesting, like fascinating. What do you think needs to be reframed most about this understanding of success we have? And what do you think is most dangerous about the current understanding of success? Well, in my 20s, I definitely was really on that path of what we think success is culturally in the Western world, which is I wanted to be in magazines. I wanted that validation. I wanted all of those milestones I was meant to want. And I just, when you get to that pinnacle moment of everything you've ever wanted, and then you're lying in bed feeling completely flat and dejected, you feel really let down not even by yourself, but you let you feel let down by the culture around you. You're like, but from literally being five years old in school, being awarded a little trophy, you're conditioned in this mindset of, of wanting more, wanting more. And then when you get there and you feel flat, like you, you will have an existential crisis. Like that's what people have. And even though we're in a cost of living crisis, even though people are struggling at the moment, even though when you still got mental health on both spectrums, I just feel like this needs to be spoken about two and if people are saying well it's not the time to talk about it I'm like no I think it's the most perfect time to talk about it. It's so true we had Johnny Wilkinson on the podcast and if you haven't listened to the episode he was the greatest rugby player in the world and in that moment he had a total existential crisis he got the trophy and felt terrible I've had my own experience I remember calling you actually on the day of my book launch being like oh this is just such an odd horrible feeling and so I totally relate and I guess sometimes I can fool myself into thinking oh maybe you just haven't reached the success that feels good yet and so you continue on the treadmill but as you do say we do as humans need an element of hope it's nice to feel in that illusion that maybe somebody does have the answers what are your thoughts on that 
Well, definitely we as humans, social animals want validation and status. Like it's that's ingrained in us. We would be lying if we said we'd be fine with having nothing and no one ever patting us on the back and saying, well done. Like we do need that. We do need an element of that. But I think what's interesting is the idea of being at the very end of your life and looking back and thinking, did I do what I set out to do? Did I live my life on my values? Did I listen to that inner voice which was guiding me? I think you can probably get to the end of your life, be very successful, but feel like, God, I really did that on other people's terms. And like my parents were proud of me, my teachers were proud of me, but I feel dejected. And I think that's what I'm trying to split out is you can be successful in a way that lights you up so much, you know, like skipping down the street, but it might not make sense to anyone else. There are certain things that I've done in the past year that I feel so excited about and so happy about. And I'll tell someone and they'll be like, oh, <laughs> like they don't understand. But I think that's the point. That's the countercultural part is we're so used to getting likes and thumbs up and you're killing it, you're smashing it, you're doing so well. But it's it jars sometimes with what actually makes you happy. And I think it's just about being aware of it. You know, we live in a capitalistic world. We need to make money. There will be certain things that I do because that's the world we live in. I can't sadly go and live just on a farm with, with nothing to do. But I'm aware that, you know, that's not going to light me up. It's the awareness, I think. I think that's really powerful. What are those sorts of things that give you this sense of joy that perhaps you wouldn't have even entertained a few years ago? I guess it's the smaller things where there's a good vibe. Yeah. And you can't really put your finger on it. Yeah. I worked with this amazing woman a few months ago, actually, who runs this newsletter in the US. And it's a great newsletter, but it's not Forbes. It's not a TED Talk. But collaborating with her, for example made me feel really good. Like I should be working with people who make me feel good. And it's really hard to put words on it or put a stamp on it. It's really a feeling. And it's that feeling that I'm tapping into. And it's just changed everything. You write about in the book that you have an image with the words, I think, death on it in your office. Can you tell us about that and why? Oh, yeah. So actually this bit, um, people do comment on in the book in a sort of why did you have to put that in the book kind of way. Because I enjoyed it. <laughs> I, because I actually it. think, I and I would love for you to tell people that bit about the funeral and the amount yeah. of time the funeral takes. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, if you, but what's interesting is people really remembered that part of the book. And I was like, I'm really glad I put it in. I think from an early age, to be honest, I've always, and we all are aware of the fact that we're all going to die. And it's like the last taboo, isn't it? I don't think about it obsessively, but I would say I think about it once a day. I, I, I'm aware of it, not always, but just very often that it's like, what's, what are we doing here? And there's this amazing piece of art that's by Mr. Bingo and it steps going up, up and up and up. And then it's just sort of the end. And then it's just an arrow going down. And it's like death. And I have it in my office because I find it really uplifting. <laughs> I know a lot of people probably don't understand that. But I think it's just being really aware that we all know where it's all headed. And I'm, don't, I'm not actually like scared of death or anything like that. But I think it's about just don't miss out. Like don't miss the journey. Don't miss the ups and the downs and the kind of rocky waters because that is literally the point. I know Oliver Berkman wrote the book 4,000 Weeks, which is about, you know, the, the time with the, if we're lucky, we will get it's like a business book, but it's also a philosophy book. And I feel like with the success myth, people might think it's like a career book, but I think underneath it's a bit of a philosophy 
Outlook book. And also, yes, so the the amount of time at a funeral is normally about 45 minutes. And so if you think that you're not even your accomplishments, I don't think anyone really reads out people's achievements at a funeral, but they'll read and celebrate your energy and your vibes and what you brought to the world and how they made you feel. And I feel like we just need to remind, be reminded of that a little bit. And as you say, you've only got 45 minutes, so they can't list everything. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And to be honest, the people that love you do not care about that amazing billboard that you were on. I just don't think they do. Yeah, it's such an important reframe, especially as I see the younger generation and I was one of them and I still am to a degree, but the enormous pressure we put on ourselves to be able to fit into this success paradigm that has been presented for us. But I'd love to talk about happiness washing. What is it and why are you very sceptical of it? Well, I think that with happiness, again, like with success, I'm kind of unpicking it in the book as a theory, as in it's a concept, it's a word. What is happiness? We think we know. We don't actually know. It can't be just sort of perfectly encapsulated in a little bottle. And of course, there are many people that came before us who have worked out a way to kind of hijack our minds a little bit and think that pair of shoes will make me happy, actually. These glasses that I bought, I was like, they will actually make me happy. I think they will forever. <laughs> and they, you know, they make you happy for a bit, but then it fades and then you want another pair and then it fades. You want to. So I think obviously that's the way it's being designed that we're always kind of, it's like a carrot on a stick. And for the book, I interviewed Dr. Rafa Uba, who is an incredible man who is not actually a practicing psychologist anymore. I feel like he can speak more freely now, but he's kind of not necessarily in it as much, but he believes that happiness doesn't actually exist. We've sort of made it up, but that doesn't mean we don't have joy. And that doesn't mean we ha don't have incredible moments of excitement, thrill, anticipation. Like There's so many words. And I was actually talking about an app that I use in the book. And at the end of the day, it asks you how you feel. And it's like, you know, happy, okay, sad, like these really kind of childish words, actually. And I don't feel any of them. Normally I press okay because I feel like the happy and sad don't really sum it up. Yeah, that's really interesting. Why does validation need to come from somewhere else other than the outside? Well, because it doesn't last, like it kind of washes off us. There's this amazing quote actually from Seth Godin when I interviewed him. He said, don't ask for reassurance because it doesn't last. So if you're asking for reassurance, it's like quicksand. You can't hold on to it. If you said to me now, you're going to be okay that just doesn't cut it. Like you need something else to kind of hold on to. So I think validation is the same as reassurance. It's like, it's just not enough. And how have you found and what tools have you used to strengthen self-trust, self-reassurance, kind of inner validation? Because I think really difficult, actually. Well, the reason why it's difficult is because you have to basically tell the truth. And I don't think we're very good at doing that to ourselves. You have to strip away a lot of things. That's the hardest bit. So in order for me, for example, to really trust myself and live in real integrity, that means breaking up with friends who no longer feel right because you've actually for so long made something okay that wasn't. It means maybe not drinking like a bottle of wine to feel better. It means sitting in that discomfort of like, I want to drink alcohol right now and then not. It means doing things for yourself that 
aren't in the short term going to make you feel very good. I think when we talk about self-care, I find that super interesting because self-care is sometimes watching like 10 episodes on Netflix. It actually is that sometimes. But sometimes it's taking yourself out for a massive hike or sometimes it's telling someone that you can't do that thing and disappointing someone. Like self-care is actually not easy. It's not lighting a candle. It's um, <laughs> it's pretty difficult to really self-care. That is so interesting how self-care has been galvanized by, as you said, like candle companies and birth time. And, and you're right, like some of the nicest things I've done for myself have been really, really hard and felt awful. It resonated with me just now when you said disappointing someone. You know, you want to say yes to everyone, of course. I mean, you do if you're a people pleaser. But yeah, love that point. You talk about the productivity myth in the book. And this is something that, as you quite rightly share, went on steroids in the girl boss era. What do you want people to challenge when it comes to productivity? There's kind of two things because there's the productivity culture in offices and corporations where there was this thing called owling where someone would leave their coat on the back of the chair and pretend they're there. Yeah, presentism. And pre presenteeism and all of that stuff. But then there's also the self-employment productivity culture, which is you can always be doing more. You can always be doing more. There's literally no end date. I could send two emails or I could send 500 emails. It's like, where do you stop? So I kind of had both in mind when I was writing the book. But really, this book is a post-pandemic book, which is the fact that during that time, we were actually told our jobs were non-essential. <laughs> when you have that literally being told to you, if you're not someone that's saving lives, your job is non-essential. So that means that the David Graeber term bullshit jobs, the fact that a lot of what we do is kind of made up. So then my <laughs> argument is, why are we getting so ill from stress? Because stress manifests, as we all know, scientifically in so many ways in the body. And so really the book was kind of a wake up call of um, it's not that important, actually, this sort of way that we have been brainwashed to think that that email is really urgent. Everything's really urgent. It's not. But back to what we were saying about trusting yourself, it's countercultural to kind of flow through the world and be like, nah, whilst also having that kind of inner drive to succeed. And I think you can have both. I think you can be actually quite a peaceful person and be really successful, but we don't see that. We don't see that modelled. So I don't know, I feel like quite rebellious because I feel super calm and relaxed at the moment. And my business numbers have gone like this. But no one talks about that. We always sort of glamorise the hustle. What's changed? What behavior for you has changed, do you think, to be able to move to this place of calm success? Well, if we're going to talk about the sort of collective version of success, I think you do have to have a bigger picture. I think that's really important for staying calm, is I think if you're really zoomed into your job and your world and your problems, which are, can be very, very valid. But I think looking at the world at the moment with the climate crisis and with in general, how we how we treat people and how even the clothes we wear, you know, we don't know how necessarily they're made. And I think you can think kind of big picture about what does collective success look like. And I think now is the time to shift into being less individualistic and more collective. And so that for me adds a layer of calm because it's like, it's not about you. It's about how do we fix the bigger picture at the moment? Because um, I think that's where the stress comes from is like, what am I doing? What is my purpose? Well, how am I changing the world? But actually, you can change the world by just showing up as quite a good person every day and trying your best. Like we feel like we have to solve everything, but we can't. 
just as one person. What do you think prevents us from moving into collective success, wanting you know the best for the greatest amount of people? Why do you think that it is so seductive to go back to selfish success? Well, I guess we live in a world at the moment and I feel like I feel very lucky to be a millennial because I actually had a childhood without a phone and I grew up really sort of nurturing my own mind I think whereas now I mean we're sat here talking about this but people see I think over 10,000 images a day we are sold this idea so much over and over again and this is why it's hard and this is why I think what's really interesting at the moment as well is the backlash to social media because when we talk about success and chasing success we also have to talk about the fact that we're seeing other people's success constantly every single day so I could be sat there going oh I feel great today feel really aligned with my values and then you go on social media and you're like ah I'm not doing that x y and z and so I think at the moment it's like willpower is and I don't really like that phrase it's more about um focus and just every single day checking in like building a practice with yourself because often Scientists talk about willpower never being strong enough. For example, if you're trying to lose weight, they say don't have cookies in the house because do not rely on willpower. You will eat those cookies. Just don't have the cookies in the house because if I'm at family style dinner, I will just like continue eating and regardless if I'm full or not, just because it's there and willpower isn't strong enough. So in relation to what you're talking about in terms of trying to remove ourselves from this quite overwhelming and powerful concept of just needing to be on that treadmill to get more and more and more it's almost like we almost need to come off social media or we almost need to kind of step away from these quite overpowering collective environments yeah that's a really good way of putting it because i don't willpower is definitely not enough and anyone that says it is is like oh that's not helpful i think it's more about a lifestyle shift it's about yeah removing things we're in this culture of adding on, like yeah. add on, get a bigger house, get a bigger mortgage, get a bigger garden, have another child, get a dog, get a hamster. And then you're trapped. That is literally like the modern day trap is having all these things you need to uphold. So really, I think the, de- the, the real message of the success myth is like, what can you remove? What can you take away from your life? My relationship with social media is interesting at the moment, I think, because I grew up really involved in it my whole career is pretty much off the back of it and now I I follow one person on Instagram and I unfollowed everyone on Twitter and like that is a sign of someone probably having a bit of a nervous breakdown (laughs) with it but I, I could not be happier with it when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. You talk about how skeptical you are of the American dream, this idea that if you work hard enough, you'll achieve your dreams. For many people, I guess this has worked out and this has created social mobility. And and in some ways, that's why I really love being in America at times, because I find that everybody is enthusiastic about your ideas. And there's this feeling that, yeah, maybe you can really do something. And it, I think it encourages innovation in some ways. I would love to hear your kind of musings on the American dream, why you think it's dangerous or and, you know, why you're skeptical of it. Yeah, there's a, there's a whole chapter on this in the book, which is basically, you know, the discussion around meritocracy and whether that exists. And people want to tell you that the playing field is level, but we all know it's not. There's this amazing author called Hashi Mohammed, who I've interviewed a few times and also is in the book, who is this sort of poster person for, you know, child refugee to barrister at Oxbridge. And he refuses to be that he's like I'm not this sort of like I did it you can do it too it's like I did it but that isn't a formula that isn't proof that just anyone can do anything because I think that also then puts down people who have tried and failed and that puts the onus on the individual like have you seen what Hashi's done so what are you doing and I just don't think that's very fair um there's many many factors that goes into someone being successful and you know it's the same as for example someone I know who's very young at the moment told me she wants to go on Love Island and she feels like that will make everything better. It's the same energy of if I just had X, if I could just have this. And I that's what I push back on because um, the American dream is a dream. It's like, what do you want from your life? Because once you get that thing, as we know, it's not really what you wanted. It's just papering over the cracks. Powerful. You have a whole chapter on the celebrity myth, which I think moves into this quite nicely it always surprises me and shocks me when the research shows the amount of young people when they're asked what they want to do and they reply I want to be it was a influencer celebrity now it's a youtuber why do you think we're so obsessed with celebrities and why do you think I mean it's probably quite a straightforward question but I'd love to hear your kind of take on it why has it come to this? And I, I really enjoyed the historical piece of like how the celebrity kind of arrived, I guess. Yeah. And there's the sort of Latin meanings behind like the word celebrity and like it does come from celebration. It comes from being literally danced around in the street. Like you are amazing. You are a celebrity. I think we've lost that a bit now in the way we treat celebrities. But it's the same reason why people want social media followers. It's like you want to be seen. You want to be heard. You want to feel like you mattered. You want to feel like people knew who you were back to the kind of whole death chat. So I understand why people want it. I was gunning for that sort of life in my 20s. Like I'm not above any of these topics. Like I'm definitely in it. But when we actually unpick the reality of what being a celebrity is like, I have nothing but empathy for people, which is very much the controversial opinion, it seems. People ha have a lot to say about celebrities. People treat them like they're sort of dehumanized they don't feel real they're sort of in the firing line it's like well, you, well your life's perfect so that means we can treat you however we want little do we know the life isn't perfect and no one is immune to suffering so 
I really do push back on the whole, like, I have no sympathy kind of message around people with money and, and privilege because I think that's what gets us into the sticky mess. And um, yeah, and I find it really interesting with uh, nepotism, for example. We all find it annoying when someone has entered the industry through friends. You know, when you go on Wikipedia and you're like, oh, that person's dad is running the production company, fine. <laughs> but I did some research and looked into nepotism and success and how actually a lot of people who got into the industry through that way don't actually feel that successful because they haven't achieved that success on their own terms. And there's nothing better than feeling like you made something happen from scratch. And so I wanted to be nuanced in this book, which I it excites me to have nuanced conversations. There's a spiritual Kabbalistic concept called bread of shame. And it, it explains that concept, this idea if you've been given bread without working hard for it, there's a feeling of shame to receiving. And it is so true. Nothing feels better when you've struggled and suddenly got that as you said, it doesn't probably last, but it's the most amazing feeling. Yeah, definitely. You write that you actually think you've lost your ambition. What do you mean by that? Well, I also write, I do write in the book about how I think ambition goes in waves. And so it's this sort of thing that can't be pinned down and it's always moving. So a lot of people post-pandemic lost our ambition. What are we doing this for? A lot of women, especially, and men, but ma mainly women, lose their ambition post-motherhood. And we don't talk about that enough. And in general, I think it waxes and wanes. And so when you lose your ambition, you get really freaked out, but it can come back. So I do talk about that. I talk about how my ambition faded around the time I got really burnt out. And yeah, it can be really demoralizing. But I sort of reframe ambition in the book because we think about ambition with this like capital A, like... I'm going to wear a suit and I'm really ambitious. And I was brought up in that culture of like Devil Wears Prada and all those TV shows where you're like, I want to be an ambitious woman. And now my ambition is for like a better life, not an ambition for a goal, if that makes sense. So again, it's, it's looking at ambition a bit differently. You talk about how five-year plans can be deceiving. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, the five-year plan is a really strange one because people do ask that, don't they, at the end of interviews and stuff, mainly because we don't know what, Five, what will happen in five years we don't know what technology will exist in five years the world will probably be completely different in five years it's just a very weird arbitrary number but I'm a fan of real micro goals so like what am I literally doing this week this day but then also really looking ahead to like the, a really big long-term goal as in kind of what we were talking about earlier like what would my like 80 year old self want <laughs> it's like looking kind of both ways can be really interesting, but I think looking at that sort of strange, slightly in the future moment doesn't actually do anything for us. How does this then link into manifestation seeing? I actually wrote a piece recently about the long game, which I don't think people think about enough. Like, what is your long game? If you're going to be in a career for decades, we're all going to be working for a long time. And so this obsession with like, I must have it now it sort of like defeats the kind of object of like having a long and happy life and a long and happy career. So again, it's kind of tapping into how something feels. And I think we're given a lot of clues. We all know deep inside like what we need to do. It's just creating that space to actually really tap into it. Otherwise it screams at you. And that's kind of what happened before my burnout is I'd had all these clues of all the things I sh should not should, but like actually should be doing. And I just ignored them 
because the culture just led me towards this shiny thing. And then suddenly it was so loud and so obvious what I need to do. And that's why people quit their job. That's why people leave their marriage in the middle of the night and pack a bag. That's why people go on an eat, pray, love adventure to Bali. And they're like, how am I here? Because it will catch up with you. I think it's just about not even knowing what you want, but knowing how you want to feel in the future. And how do you want to feel in the future? Relaxed. (laughs) I really do. I think, you know, Elizabeth Gilbert talks about this all the time. She's like, it's a really revolutionary idea to meet someone who's relaxed. You know, I'll look on the tube coming here and no one's relaxed. And why would we be? Because we're living in this culture at the moment where everyone's telling you what to do all the time. You obviously shared a little bit about this when you read about your book, but what worries you most about gurus? I think what worries me is not necessarily what the gurus are doing, like they can do their thing. It's the people who are spending all their money on it. The get rich quick schemes, the I can change your life in a day schemes. This is a really long process. And also, you know, in the book, I talk about how the finish line is not the goal that we keep talking about when I get this, when I get that. And it's like, have you noticed that you're always in the now? Like you're always in present tense. Even when you're like really old and elderly, you're just still in the now. Like there is no change really. There is no past and future. Like Eckhart Tolle always says, but yeah, it's like settling into kind of what, like what I want is what I want right now, which is like feeling quite relaxed. And what I guess, processes or what steps have you put in place to be on this path to creating and have created in this moment a relaxed existence? What would be your three pieces of advice for people who are looking to have a bit of a life sprinkling? Yeah. So this is, and I've always said this, I've said this even when I was like 24 and basically quit my job to go and do my own thing, which is, work out what you need. Like, what do you actually need to pay your bills? What do you need to get by? How will that free you up to figure out what will actually kind of make you happy in the surrounding elements? Because we all all have to live like in society and earn money and play our part, like whatever that is. But there's no need to kind of trap yourself more than you need to. So for example, spending on a holiday you don't even want to go on with people you don't even like that much like cut that out you know cut out all these things that are adding to your stress and what you're left with is kind of a probably quite a basic existence like we are social animals we need to sleep we need to eat we need to live in a in hopefully like a house or not van life is very on the rise now (laughs) but kind of just try and strip some things away even in your imagination strip things away and again it's very countercultural because you're meant to want all the things I love the word counterculture because it feels kind of liberatingly rebellious. And I think all of us inherently want to be rebellious in some ways. It kind of feels good. So I love this idea that you paired social rebellion with actually being relaxed and with, you know, living life more on your own terms and actually understanding that that is truly rebellious. But the, the other thing I'll say quickly, though, is that um, even that question sometimes doesn't sit right because... I don't know, like like how I how I read in the in the book. I know when like, I asked I, you, I, 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 I don't like, know. I just asked you what you've just told me that like you're not <laughs> like, an advice giver. Yeah, and what you want to be, and it's and it's really interesting. That. I've really noticed that now, where it's re- it's like giving advice to like a mass of people is like I don't know, you know. It's like I know what I need to do. I don't know what anyone else needs to do. But that's why coaching is so powerful 
because when you sit with someone and you and you kind of tease out of them what they need to be doing it's really amazing yes it's so interesting that I even asked that question because from my perspective I so want to help people and so by asking the question you're like can we extract any forms of thought that potentially could help someone shift their life yeah, in a way that's going to help people but fundamentally it it is truly about kind of like strengthening you know one's own intuition but it's like one of the greatest challenges that we face as humans I know but I also feel that we are going in that direction and it's really exciting I don't know if I'm an optimist but I feel like I am an optimist because I'm not like oh it's all doom and gloom I'm like no no like what is underneath all this stuff that we're supposed to want is really amazing stuff. And I know that even if you Donna Lancaster, yeah. I reference her in the book about phase one and phase two. Phase one is get all the things, look really good, feel really validated with all your stuff and your nice house or whatever. And then phase two is um, when you realize that's not enough. Well, I think she would argue you have to go through phase one to get to phase two, which is when you're like, oh, I missed the trick. It's not about that stuff. It's about how I'm feeling day to day. Do you think age has a lot to play with getting to this place where you're able to actually challenge, you know, some parts of your life that maybe you're putting more energy into than you should? That's such an interesting question because I actually thought when I wrote this book that 20 something me would put this in the bin and be like, no, go away. This is really irritating. But then I did a talk to a huge room of Gen Z, really young people, 19 to 23, and they were all on board. They were like, yeah, yeah. It was like they knew, they knew it all. They were like, yeah, we don't, we don't want to um, waste our lives by being stressed and being in a, hor- in a marriage that doesn't work. Or I was inspired by them. What's life lesson you've been reminded of recently and why? I think that in your time of need, like something will show up. I'm not religious, but I have a lot of faith in a lot of stuff at the moment. I think when you go through also like a terribly bad burnout episode, which is very, very similar to grief and loss, and we can call it any term we want to. We all know what that human experience is like when everything falls away and you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. I feel like I went through something like that recently and it wasn't actually that bad. I felt very like supported. And I feel like a lot of us are, even if we don't have friends or family that necessarily are that supportive, like you will be supported. That sounds very airy fairy, doesn't it? No, I love that. I but I agree. felt like very kind of like, I just need to move through this. And so I think anytime you've been through something really bad, um, you will feel stronger. Biggest cliche in the book, but you're like, oh, I got through that. Go me. <laughs> come out the other side it goes back to that point you shared earlier about maybe the greatest self-care you can give yourself is something that feels really uncomfortable that discomfort and actually the joy and the the feeling of being proud of yourself of getting for getting through it yeah and you have to get through it yourself which is why I think you feel so powerful because you know the whole caterpillar in the cocoon and then the butterfly coming out and if the butterfly is helped out it can die Like the butterfly has to like struggle on its own to be strong. And I think when no one else can help you and you need to struggle through it, you do feel like pretty resilient. 
that's such a lovely image. I actually had no idea that if you help a butterfly out, it might not survive. Yeah, I think that's really brilliant. You know, one thought I've had while you've been talking is this idea that often I know for myself, I have been on this success treadmill because it's been directly related, I think, to childhood wounds on desperately trying to get kind of financial security or consistency and safety. So um, to take myself off this success treadmill that society promises you would probably take even more kind of really healing, psychological, I would say, coding. What are your thoughts on that? That's a really tough one because we do need help. Like we do need a coach. We do need wisdom. We need, like, sometimes we need really kind of strong therapy around things to learn to let them go but it still goes back to that that same thing where you, you kind of have to do the work which is really difficult you know that whole thing of like no one's coming to save you and I used to be like well, what do you mean and this is what I tread between the book is um I talk about systemic problems how like we're all in it together like no one's on their own no one needs to suffer alone but then you also pair that with the fact that like it is also has to come from us that's why I, yeah I don't know. I don't have the answer. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I understand your book is a wonderful kind of, in some ways, accessible utopia. Do you know what I mean? Like a utopia of, in our most healed selves, I think that we don't need the societal kind of illusions. You know, they'd be less seductive. But that's interesting because on the cover, there's a balloon and it says letting go of having it all. But the main key is letting go. And that, and like, what does that look like for each person? That could be really quite embedded trauma. And I'm no trauma expert, so that, that I leave those that to the experts. But it's all the same, no matter if it's like really that that sort of scale we're talking about, or something's annoyed you earlier. It's this big spectrum of like, how do we let things go? Essentially, yeah, it's really really hard because we can kind of go around in circles. And it reminds me of the image of kind of not letting go is like holding on to the the hot kettle it only only seeks to kind of hurt us in more ways um so i really i really love that looking back what's been one of the best decisions and why i think i would say like quitting my job when i was 26 however old i was basically like all the best decisions i've ever made are all the decisions that i instinctively knew i should do like this is what's so funny and so contradictory about me is like all my friends and family would say I'm a complete worse like if we're going like you know on a long hike or something I'm like do I have enough water and am I gonna die and I'm really scared and what's that insect but when it comes to my career I feel really courageous and I just feel like all of these risks that I've made where people are like what are you doing why are you leaving that amazing job or why are you risking everything for this it's like it's it has worked out it doesn't always, but I think we we forget how amazingly resilient we are. Like we are like hundreds of thousands of millions of evolution. And we think that we couldn't get another job if we're made redundant. Like the people before us pretty much got out of all sorts of weird situations. So I think it's, yeah, trusting your instincts and taking risks. Who's given you the most useful advice, even though we discussed the fact that, you know, we should be skeptical of any advice that's been given? But in all the coaching you've done and all the interviews that you have received such wisdom, whose wisdom has stayed with you the longest or has had the most profound impact? This is like a bit cheesy, but I would say it's my husband, Paul, because he is someone who is in reality 
I'm in my head most of the time writing books and all the rest of it. He's just in the reality that we can see every day. And um, he really brings me back down to earth and reminds me that like the problem isn't really a problem. It can be figured out. So yeah, I would say that. And also the fact that when I was really badly burnt out and unwell, he didn't treat me like I was broken and need to be fixed. It was like, he just, he was like, oh yeah, you're moving through something. So I think it's like any advice that's like not trying to change what's happening. Oh, that's so lovely. The kind of acceptance that he gave you and he clearly gives you, you know, in all phases of life. Yeah, I'd say that. Well, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for reading the book so closely. (laughs) I could really tell. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed today, please hit subscribe and leave a comment because this helps the podcast so much. I'd be endlessly grateful if you wouldn't mind doing so. My mental health book, Happy Not Perfect, is available to order now. The book teaches you how to be a flexible thinker. A skill that helps you navigate any challenge that might come your way, helps you manage emotions, and helps you thrive to be the bendiest version of yourself. Until next time, I love hearing from you, so do shoot me a message on Instagram, send me a DM with any of your thoughts. Stay safe and well. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.